Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. Uh, my name is Steve. I am one of the leaders here, and we are continuing our series through the book of Ephesians. We started this last week and um, are working our way straight through. And um, if you are a first-time visitor with us, a guest, welcome to the deep end of the pool. Um, today's text is complex, challenging. Um, some of you may even find it offensive. Um, my job is, is ultimately to try and unpack it so that we can understand it, okay? And that's what we're going to do today. Um, last week when we kicked off our series, we started off with this idea that the book of Ephesians is really about the greatest message ever given to man, and that is that God is in the business of taking sinners and turning them into saints. God's heart is not primarily to reject, to destroy, to judge. His heart is to take sinners and turn them into saints, He wants to take what is broken and make it whole. He wants to take what is hurt and heal it. He wants to ultimately bring health where there is sickness. And that is great news. So great that that ultimately the word that's used in Scripture to describe it is salvation. Um, Lauren was out of town the uh, the last couple of days. She went and visited a friend. And and so Friday night, um, kids and I were home. And... um, what do you do when you're at home with the kids and um, Lauren's not around? Well, you do the only logical thing. You go rent zombie movies. And so that's what we did, movies that she would never want to watch with us. We watched together. It was great. It was gory and, and um, scary and wonderful. Okay, so in one of these movies, um, this dude wakes up in the hospital and he got into an accident and every, the world was completely normal when he got into his accident. He wakes up in the hospital, and the whole world has been destroyed. He gets up. There's nobody in the hospital. He wanders out on the street, can't find anybody, um, ultimately wanders around until he discovers his first um, zombies, uh, rage virus-infected people. And he realizes that the world's a very different place than when he went to sleep, right? He finds his first normal people. They rescue him. They start giving him a bit of an education about what it means to live in the world today. And he's going through this process of figuring out everything that's been lost, everything that that he will never be able to see again, everything he will never be able to do again, everything that ultimately is different and broken and hurt. And um, they are listening to the radio, and it's kind of a pivotal point where um, they hear a message being broadcast by the military basically saying, okay, you guys, we've got a, a sanctuary set up and we have salvation. That, in fact, that's the word they used. They said, if you come 27 miles north of the city, um, we have salvation. And it was a powerful word um, because in that situation, that's what they needed. They needed to be saved. They needed something that could, in fact, give them hope in a hopeless situation, something that would give them ultimately the uh, hope that life could be what it was created to be once again, right? Um, 
kind of a crazy illustration. But honestly, we see that theme running not only through all of our art and literature and movies, but in our own hearts. The world's broken. The world is broken. And it is true that we can create little bubbles in our lives. We are incredibly blessed here in America. We can go through our lives and minimize the suffering, minimize the discomfort. But the reality is the world is a, a broken, hurt place. And if you were to look at a global look at even what life is like today on a global scale, not just here, but across the world, you would see how incredibly broken, how much pain, how wicked and dark the human heart is. The human condition is broken. And that story replays itself over and over and over again. The good news is that God is in the business of restoring what's been lost. At the end of last week, we took a look at that greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about how that was not just a a well-wishing. It wasn't just, you know, Paul saying, hey, I hope you have a nice day. It was him basically saying, I'm offering you shalom. That's the Hebrew word for peace. What he's saying is the, the very thing you're craving, the gospel gives you, right? Everything you do in life. Every choice you make is, is really, I believe, a pursuit of shalom. Why are you choosing the major you're pursuing? Why, why are you trying to date? Why do you want to get married? Why do you want to have kids? Why do you want more money? Why, why do you want people to notice you in class? Why do you want to get good grades? I would propose to you that ultimately it's your ultimate pursuit of shalom. You are trying to achieve that sense of not just lack of conflict. That's not what we mean by peace. What we mean by peace is this idea of wholeness. Of, of everything being in its right place, everything having its purpose, so that our lives are infused with, with purpose and balance and health and wholeness. That's what we want. And everything we do in life is ultimately a pursuit of shalom, even the self-destructive things that we do. Why do people go get hammered on the weekend? Well, it's fun. It's an escape. What are you escaping from? <laughs> Your lack of shalom. I mean, you're trying to desperately get Shalom. And here's the offer, you guys. There's this thing called the gospel. It's a Greek word that means good news. And the good news is that God is in the business of turning sinners into saints. God is in the business of restoring shalom and peace to a broken world. And that's what we're going to unpack in Ephesians. Ephesians is, especially in Ephesians 1, an unpacking of this good news. Now, when you take a look at verses 3 through, just take a look at it, 3 through 14, you can't tell, but in the original Greek, that is one sentence. Uh, one really long, complicated sentence. It's almost as if Paul got so psyched about what he was talking about, man, he just exploded onto the page. He was just like, I have a lot to say, and here it is, bam. And it's just this, this flowing out of ideas that are intermingled, and, and there's a lot of complexity here, um, but at the heart of it is this profound and simple message. That God is planning to bless you. God is purposing to bless you. This sentence spans eternity. It begins in eternity past. That's what we're going to take a look at this morning. It unpacks the glorious plan of what God did to save us and looks at eternity future and what God will do with us as a result of what he's done. And all the way through, we're going to see this interplay of the three persons of the Trinity. Now, the Trinity is one of these crazy ideas that that we really just can't get our head around, right? It's this idea that there are three who's and one what. There are, there are three who's, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One what? There's only one God. Okay, so God is, is singular, but he is three people. 
I can't explain it any better than that. That's all I got, okay? But that's how he reveals himself. He has eternal community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this eternal dance of, of relationship, of love, of joy, of purpose, of interaction. And in himself, he is completely self-sustained. God needs nothing outside of himself. And when he created the entire world, it wasn't because he was lonely. It was because he had so much of himself, so much of his joy, so much of his shalom, that he wanted to create man in his own image, that he might pour out his goodness into their lives, and they might experience the outflow of his glory. For his glory and for our good. And when we look, God not only created the world as a, as a Trinitarian overflow of his creativity, God is going to redeem the world through the same activity. We see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in action throughout this sentence. Uh, in fact, take a look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. You, you have immediately... All three persons of the Godhead mentioned God, the Father, Jesus Christ. That phrase, spiritual blessing, doesn't mean ethereal. It means blessings that flow from the person of the Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in fact, farther down, this week, we're going to be taking a look at verses 4 and 5, which are really this, this idea that God the Father planned to redeem us. God the Father laid out the plan that would ultimately rescue humanity. God the Son's job was to be the hero of the story. God the Son's job was ultimately to, to enact the plan, the one who would actually carry it out. And then God the Spirit, His job is ultimately to come along and empower the plan and protect it. And, and so we move through all three persons in this dance of redemption as ultimately God works to redeem a lost and fallen humanity. This morning, we're going to be taking a look specifically at the role of God the Father as it's revealed to us here in Ephesians 1. And, and let me just say this. I mean, this is kind of the heart of it. God has purposed to bless you for a very, very long time. God has known you and wanted to bless you for longer than you can imagine. Um, if you take a look at verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying here, um, this is what we call a eulogy. He's saying it's a command. You should bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also an outflow of response to the things that we're going to talk about. In other words, the things we're going to unpack this morning move his heart to overflow in blessing, in praise, worship, and love for God. Why? Because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has blessed us in the person and the work of Christ with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Um, just to unpack that a little bit, I mean, that sounds kind of, um, I don't know, otherworldly maybe, ethereal, not very practical. Like, yeah, that's great. I hope I get there someday. And when I get there, that'll be really nice to have all those blessings, right? That's not what it's saying. It's not saying that these are great blessings someday. What he's saying is that God has actually given you the key to all blessings. That all blessings are wrapped up in this blessing. When he says, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, every blessing that flows from the work of the Holy Spirit in heavenly places. Ultimately, what he's saying is this, that the gospel is the greatest blessing that he could give to you. Why? Because it ultimately redirects your heart to true shalom 
The blessing of the gospel will ultimately lead you to the relationship that you need to ultimately find absolute balance, ultimate satisfaction, real meaning, real purpose in life. The thing that you're so pursuing and can't get a hold of in any other way, this opens the door. This invites you in. This is the greatest message you could ever hear. The greatest good news, the greatest offer to ever be given to you. Better than any job offer, scholarship offer, college offer, marriage offer, whatever it is, this actually unlocks our ability to move back into relationship with God. The very thing we're craving. So that we're then free to enjoy the gifts of God without trying to turn the gifts of God into God's. Instead of looking to things that aren't God to do for us what only God can do and be for us what only God can be. It's an overflow of praise. That's the proper and normal response to the things that we're going to talk about. I know that for some of you that is not going to be your response, nor has it been a typical response of many people that I've talked to. We're going to be talking about big things like election, predestination, God's sovereign will. These are hard things to talk about. They're emotionally loaded things to talk about. I know that because um, invariably when I get into one-on-one conversations with people, I find them flaring up and getting angry. We're not just talking about ideas. We're talking about things that impact us and our view of God. And I'm going to propose to you up front that these aren't things that are really meant to be studied and mastered as much as things to be looked at so that our hearts are moved to wonder and to worship. And we'll unpack that as we go. But that's where we're going this morning, you guys. I'm going to warn you a little bit. This sermon's going to be definitely a little bit more teachy than preachy. As I come to this text, I, I felt the weight of trying to, you know, do I, do I tell stories to illustrate it? Do I, and I really felt like what I needed to do was just lead us into the text itself and let the text speak for itself and trust that God is going to move our hearts to worship in response to taking a look at this. So we're just going to move very systematically through this passage. Starting in verse 4, even as he chose us. So we're supposed to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Why? Because he chose us. He chose us. This is the same Greek word that we get the word election from. He elected us. God chose us. What does that mean? It means that God chose those who would be his own. In his sovereign choice, he chose. He is the initiator. We are the responders. He is the actor. We are the reactors. He is the one that makes choices. We are the ones who respond. He's the initiator. We're the responders. I know. We'll unpack it. Crazy hard. But I want to tell you, this is, in fact, the consistent teaching of Scripture. When you go through the Old Testament, you see continually that God is sovereign. God is God. God has authority. God makes choices. And ultimately, we're not. We see that in the Gospels. Jesus um, speaks of this and acts in in full accord with it. We see it in the epistles. Um, In fact, take a look at this. This is from John chapter uh, 15. In John chapter 15... Um, let's read the verse and then I'll unpack it a little bit. He said, you didn't choose me. He's speaking to his disciples. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. 
John chapter 15, let me give you the context. This is Jesus' last night. He's, he's the last supper. He's, he's basically preparing his disciples for his crucifixion and resurrection. He is leaving. And he is leaving them with the incredible responsibility of carrying the gospel forward. They are given the single most important message ever given to humanity. <laughs> the entire fate of the world is being placed on their shoulders. Like five minutes ago, these guys were just arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, right? These guys are backbiters. They're prideful. They're arguing. They can't get organized to save their lives. This is not a group that inspires a lot of confidence, okay? And if they look around at each other, they're not going to be like, man, I, I believe you could actually do this. Jesus says this to them. Why? To comfort them. To give them strength. This, isn't, this is his way. He's, he's saying, look, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I was the actor. You were the responder. I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. I decided that you were going to follow me. And then I appointed you after I decided that. I said, you're going to bear fruit. And not just any fruit, you're going to actually bear fruit that abides. This is incredibly freeing. This is incredibly liberating. Why? Because it means it doesn't all rest on their shoulders. They are free to let God be God. You know, some people have said, and I've heard people say this, they even argue it's in the Bible, you know, God will never give you anything that's too great for you to handle. I have bad news for you if you believe that. That's not in the Bible. And it's not true. God will give you things that are too hard for you to handle all the time. Because guess what? You can't handle much. The good news is that He can. He can handle it in you and through you. The weight of, of and, and this spoke to me personally because I know for myself, I feel the weight of my inadequacy every day. The people that are entrusted to me to shepherd and to lead and to speak into their lives, people come and pour out their hearts to me and I'm looking across the table and I'm going, Lord, I don't know what to say. I don't have the answers. This is incredibly difficult. Not only that, I look into my own heart and I see the wickedness. I mean, I see the darkness of my own heart. I, I see that even on my best day, I'm a sinner. Even when I'm up here preaching, a lot of times I got this dialogue going on in the back of my head, like, I wonder if that made me look good. Uh, they all laughed at me. I'm wonderful. I'm standing up here trying to steal the glory of God, right? Okay, I'm just confessing. On my best day, I am not adequate for the task that's been given to me. The good news is that if God makes us adequate, we're adequate. If God says, I have appointed you to do this, huh, he's the one that gets it done. And the good news is this, that ultimately it gets done. And I don't get any glory. So I can't get all puffed up and prideful about it. But I, neither do I get hopeless. Because it rests in his power. Do you understand this? This is a teaching that ultimately humbles me because it means that I was so bad off, I needed him to ultimately do it for me. But it also exalts me because he loved me so much, he wants to pour out his glory in and through my life. Consistent teaching of Scripture. God initiates, we respond. It is a simple message, 
But I get that it can be incredibly difficult to grapple with and to think through. For some people, they find it even an offensive thought. Why? Because who is God to be God? We would never put it like that. But a lot of us, let's be honest, we have this picture of God where he's kind of like this this kind of disconnected dude up in the sky moving chess pieces around dispassionately. Oh, I think I'll take this piece and move it over there and this piece move it over there. And we're like, you know, who are you to mess with me? Who are you to have control over my, who are you to make decisions like that? I, I, you know, I mean, we just get kind of offended. But you know what, you guys, that, that is a complete misrepresentation of the sovereignty of God. It's a complete misrepresentation of the character of God. Take a look at our verse. It says, even as he chose us in him. Incredibly important phrase. That phrase, in him, is going to be almost a dozen times through chapter one. As we unpack the message of the gospel and, and God's re- rescue plan, what you're going to find is that that, that idea, it, it revolves around the work of Christ. He's at the heart of it. It's like this redemptive dance in which Christ is the center. And everything points back to Christ and exalts Christ and looks at the work of Christ because because he is the hero, in a sense, of the plan. But we were rescued in him. You guys, what I want you to see is this, that when he chose us in him, it was not a dispassionate, disconnected choice. Because when he chose us, he committed himself to saving us. When he chose us, He committed himself to laying down his life for us. When he chose us, he committed himself to paying the price to redeem us. We'll unpack more of that as we go. When did it take place? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. When did God choose us? Before we were even born before you existed or even the idea of you existed on this earth, he knew you. He knew you, not just your potential, you. You know why? Because God doesn't exist in time. Time is this thing that was created for us to exist in. This idea that, you know, we're born and we live our lives and someday we're going to die and and it's all past and future, right? God is the I am, the great I am of the universe. He lives in the ever-present. And what that means is that the beginning of the world is right now to him and the cross is right now to him and he is in this space right now to him. He is at the end of the world right now to him. Eternity past is right now to him. He is the ever-present I am. He is not bound by time. I don't understand that. What it means is this, you guys. It means that God never changes. He is the ever-present I am. There's no shadow of turning with him. There's never change with God. So how long have you been at the heart of God? Forever. There was never a time that God didn't know you. There was never a time that God had not chosen you to receive the blessing that poured out through the sacrifice of his son. There was never a time that he was not planning to bless you. God has been planning to bless you for a very, very long time. And he was determined, determined to bless us. Not just by giving us good stuff, but by actually changing us back into the good stuff we were created to be. Take a look at the next phrase. It says that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Why? So that we should be holy 
and blameless before him in love. Holy and blameless. He, he chose us for a purpose, for us to be holy and blameless. We're not holy and blameless now. <laughs> Let's be honest. Holy and blameless are those, I, I don't know about you, but like before I became a Christian, that word holiness, that just was, I didn't like that word. It's like alienating to me. You know why? Because I always felt condemned by it. It was this dark, foreboding, scary thing. I read a novel by C.S. Lewis when I, when I first became a believer called Till We Have Faces. And in that novel, um, it's a fictitious story of this young girl who lives before the birth of Christ in the Greek world. And she's describing a temple in her town where this goddess Ungit, um, who was also Aphrodite, was, was being worshipped. And she was just this big black rock that was in this dark, nasty building. It was covered with the blood of sacrifices. Um, It stank in there. It smelled of oppression. And then her line was this. It stuck with me. It smelled of holiness. And I thought, holy cow, that's how I feel. Holiness is this ugly, scary thing. You know why it was that way to me? Because it just showed me where I fell short. It just showed me how I was condemned. This idea of holiness. I knew I wasn't holy. I mean, I knew. Maybe I could find some things about myself that I liked, but I knew I wasn't holy. And that idea of holiness, man, it was like this dark, foreboding, scary thing. The word holy literally means completely set apart. For something. Not away from something, but for something. Something that is holy is completely set apart for the glory of God. Something that is completely sanctified, completely set apart for the experience of the glory of God. Do you guys realize that outside of grace, holiness is threatening and ugly? Inside of grace, it is the exact thing we want. Because it is the source of shalom. It is the source of actually moving back into a relationship with God and having our deepest needs met, our deepest desires answered. It's the source of shalom, holiness, blameless. You were chosen before the foundation of the world to be blameless. To be blameless means to be without flaw. Like, like can't find, we we could put you under the, the, the most powerful microscope and we wouldn't find any impurity. We could examine your character, your life, your heart, and we would find nothing that didn't line up with the perfect character of God. He chose you to be holy and blameless. He chose you. Which means that He has chosen to make you holy and blameless. To change you, not just to give you what you want, but to change you into what you are supposed to be. To change you into what you were created to be. Whatever the cost to Himself. Now, this next phrase, in love is a tricky one because it can go either way. I told you guys that all of this is one big Greek sentence, right? When you read this, this is just like one really crazy, complicated Greek sentence. To make it worse, if you were to see the original page, the original Greek was written in all caps with no spacing and no punctuation. That's how the Greeks wrote. Koine Greek was one solid page of all caps, no spacing, no punctuation. And it makes it kind of difficult when you come to a phrase like this, in love, because it can actually go either way. In fact, in, our, in the ESV, when you look at it, you'll notice that there's a period after him. 
that we should be holy and blameless before Him, period. In love, He predestined us for adoption. That's logical. And, I, and that works. I actually don't believe that's the right spot to put the period. I think the period should go after in love. I think in love goes with the previous idea. Let me explain to you why. Because God didn't just set us apart to make us perform right. It's not just about getting you to do the right things. That's not what he's saying. He's not just saying someday you're going to do all the right things. Someday you're going to measure up because you won't fall short in any area. That's not the primary point. What he's saying is you will be holy because the way you love will be fixed. I will realign the delights of your heart. You will be, you're chosen to be holy and blameless before him in love. It's not just about you doing the right things. He's going to change your heart so that you delight in the right things. You're going to stop pursuing shalom in all the wrong places because your heart is going to be so tuned to the character of the glory of God that you're going to delight only in Him. You're going to crave holiness, not run from it, because He's going to realign your love so that you love Him purely. Not like we love Him now. The best of us right now love Him with a flawed love, with conflicting motivations. He has set us apart to be free, free to come into the great dance of relationship with Him, of loving and being loved and knowing and being known and delighting in and being delighted in. He's going to realign us so that we love right. And out of that love, we will behave right. We will make right choices. But it's not about the performance. It's about the love of the relationship. So how did God work out this election? How did God plan to make sinners saints? He did it by predestining us to be adopted as sons. Here's the next big word that is often loaded and challenging and, and even offensive, predestination. Um, to be destined in, in the original language literally means to mark out the boundaries of. To be predestined means that those boundaries are marked out before you ever get there. The boundaries of your life have already been pre-marked out. God, God has marked you, predestined you, set your boundaries in advance so that you would in fact be adopted as sons. You would move into the position of greatest honor and greatest blessing. He would make the sinner to be a saint by taking the rebel and making him a son. Now this applies, you guys, both to men and women, sons and daughters. And the reason is this. Culturally, um, during this period of time, when they wrote this, a son had unique and special rights within the family rights that, that um, women didn't have. This is actually a very powerful statement from Paul. What he's saying is that men and women have been adopted as sons. It's not meant to be sexist. It's meant to be empowering, basically saying this, that we all have the same position in Christ. We have been chosen to a position of influence and, and privilege and authority and power. As sons, not as slaves, not as servants, not as second-class citizens, not as foster children, 
as wonderful as, as all of those things can be, we have been brought in fully, adopted as sons, with all the privilege and all the benefit of actually being a son of God. This is legal language. So we have the full rights. What this means is this. He chose us to have the same access to him that his son has. He chose us to actually be able to stand before him and stand on equal footing with Jesus. Why? Because that's who he's changing us to be like. He chose us to be holy and blameless before him in love. He chose us ultimately to become like his son with the same privilege, the same power, doesn't mean we're going to be turned into God, but it does mean that we have the same access to his delight. We get to stand in that same access of love. And he did it through Jesus Christ, his son. Look at the verse. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Here's that idea again, the centrality of Christ in all things. Um, we're going to unpack this more next week when we look at Jesus' role in God's plan. Let's just say this morning this, that, that ultimately we were adopted as sons because Jesus was our substitute in judgment. Because Jesus took our place in judgment, we get to stand in his place of blessing. Because he took the death we deserved, we get the benefit of the life that was his. We, he, he, he died in the place of the rebel, so that we stand with him in his place as a son. And here's the crazy thing. He didn't do it because he was forced to. No one forced God's hand. He did it because he wanted to. Take a look at the end of that verse. He predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. According to the purpose of his will. Why does God do what he does? Because he wants to. And for some of us, that's exactly where we want to jump off the train. (laughs) That gets a little offensive. We have questions. We want rational explanations. If God chooses who's going to believe in him, I want to know why. I want to know why he doesn't choose other people, why he chooses some people. I want to know why, how's that fair? I want to know, I have a lot of questions for God. I want you to realize what's going on in our heart when we're doing that. What we're doing is essentially sitting in a chair over God and saying to God, you need to justify your decisions to me before I'll love you. Before I will trust you. You have to explain yourself to me. I need to have some sort of rational explanation that helps me justify what you're telling me before I can trust you. And what's interesting is that he simply doesn't give us an answer. What he says is, this is what I did. Now, we have a lot of ways to try and circumvent that. Some of us, man, the tension here is just too strong. I've sat down with people and and they've tried to, and and, and even I have explored these ideas. Um, The corridor of time is a real popular conception. God looked down the corridor of time and he saw who was going to believe in him when given the opportunity. And so he preemptively chose them. He chose them because he knew they would choose him. 
great, but it's not in the Bible. That's not what the text says. Text doesn't say he chose those he knew he was going to choose him. He says he chose those that he chose to chose according to the counsel of his will. The only criteria that influenced his choice was himself. God sovereignly chose. And for some of you, you feel your hearts right now pulling back from this because you're afraid to trust. This idea is repeated in verse 11. The Lord doesn't back off from it. He offers no explanation, no self-justification, no defense. In verse 11, he says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance. In Christ, we've obtained an inheritance. He's earned something for us that is in the future. Having been, us, having been predestined according to what? The purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Why does God do what He does? Because He wants to. That's the only answer He gives. I do what I do because I'm God. I sovereignly act as a sovereign God because I'm the sovereign God. How do we trust a God like that? Well, here's the deal. God's already given you everything you need to know to trust Him. God doesn't try to explain the complexity of His own reasoning. I don't think He could if He wanted to. Maybe He could. Maybe He could give us the ability to understand it. But that's not His job. His job is not to sit under our examination. His job is to show us His heart. And in showing us His heart, give us an invitation to trust. Do you want to know what the answer is to our questions? Jesus. That's the answer to your question. How do you know if you can trust God? Look at Jesus. This is not a God who stands separate and distant from our struggles. He is a God who, when He chose us, committed Himself to paying the ultimate price to redeem us. Do you want to see the heart of God? Look at the person of Christ. And you will see there a God who paid a price you can't understand, who suffered a pain that you cannot process who ultimately stepped into a place that was more repugnant to him than you can ever imagine. The Holy One of God becoming sin for us that he might be crushed in our place. You want to know the heart of God? Look at the cross of Christ. You don't need intellectual answers, nor could any intellectual answer speak to your heart as powerfully as the person and the work of Christ. God says to you, I am God and I am trustworthy. I am God and I will do what I will do. And you can trust me because I'm a God who's for you. I'm a God who loves you. And there's going to be a lot of junk in your life that you don't understand. And there's going to be a lot of stuff that's tough to process. And there's going to be a lot of things that I'm going to tell you about myself that you're going to have a lot of intellectual questions about but you need to realize that the only and most powerful answer I will ever give you is to show you my heart. And when I show you my heart, that is the only answer you'll need. What's the result of this? 
when we engage this idea of God being the one who chooses and predestines, makes choices that ultimately commit himself and free us, the result should be an overflowing of praise in our hearts. That should be the result. Not complex intellectual questions. That may be part of it. Not anger we have to process. That may be part of it. But ultimately, when we really see what's going on, there will be an overflow of praise in our hearts. If you look at the end of that verse, he predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. Why did God do all this? So that we would live to the praise of his glorious grace. We will be filled with gratitude. We'll be filled with wonder and with awe and with love, that's so powerful a demonstration of love, we will see his grace as glorious and we'll see it as grace. We won't come to the table saying to God, you owe me, I deserve, you are cosmically indebted to me. We will look at God and say, I deserve nothing, but you gave me everything. I have earned nothing, but you have blessed me with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. You have given me the one blessing that sets loose all the other blessings in my life. We are moved to praise. We are moved to trust. We are moved to freedom. In the same way that the disciples, when Jesus looked at them and said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. They were then freed in humble confidence to carry forward the work that they were not adequate to carry forward, but in confidence that God was greater because he had a purpose that surpassed theirs. We are free to rest in a God whose purpose is greater than our own. This is a hard word, and I know that some of you are in process about this. Some of you may have never heard this stuff taught in church before, or maybe you've heard different things taught about it. I don't know. A lot of churches just kind of skip over this stuff because it's hard to preach and it doesn't make the preacher very popular. But I'll tell you this, one of the reasons I love the way we approach Scripture is we just start at the beginning and work our way through because I believe it's here for a purpose. God revealed this to us to move our hearts to awe and worship. So as you're processing this stuff, here are a few final thoughts that I want to throw out there that I think are helpful to us as we process this idea of election and predestination. The first thing is this, don't estimate how bad off we were outside of Christ. Do not underestimate how bad off we were outside of Christ. You guys, here's the deal. We didn't need a rescue plan. We needed a resurrection. On the same page, look at Ephesians chapter 2, just write in the next column over. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. Stop there. You were dead. What does that mean? God said to Adam and Eve in the garden, the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. How did they die in the garden? Well, here's the deal, you guys. Death doesn't mean a cessation of existence. Death means separation. In the day they ate of the tree of the, uh, uh, in the garden, they were separated from God, the source of life. 
They were separated from the only and true source of shalom they would ever know, and they were doomed to seeking that shalom and everything that couldn't give it. They were continually looking to find a replacement for God in their lives. They were dead to God. Their every impulse was to pursue ultimately finding something outside of God that only God could give. They were dead. And then they died physically. It doesn't mean they ceased to exist. It meant that their soul was separated from their body. We're all eternal beings. God created us to be eternal beings. Death isn't a cessation of existence. It's a separation. You were dead. Dead. You don't throw a life preserver to a corpse. You you don't give them a better plan for swimming to the shore. They're dead. You guys, we didn't need someone to come along and give us help. We needed someone to come along and say, you're now alive. You were dead. Do you understand that if God didn't choose us, no one would ever be reunited with life. If God did not sovereignly break in and restore life or it had been lost, no one would ever be saved. Ever. It's an act of grace, pure grace where God steps in and does what no one deserved him to do by coming in and giving life where there was only death. In fact, if you look down at verse 4 right there in chapter 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That sentence right there, It's saying the exact same thing that we're looking at in chapter one. We were dead, God made us alive. God chose us and made us alive through the work of Christ and in the person of Christ. We were once again reunited to the source of life. We were dead. Don't underestimate how bad off we were. Because if God didn't choose to save us, no one would be saved. And in order to bring us back to life, he had to die. In order for us to be brought back to life, he had to die. And that's the second thing I think we need to keep in mind. See, if your heart rises up against this in doubt toward God, remind yourself of the character of God. We're going to unpack this more next week as we look at the next section of Ephesians 1 where we look at the work of Christ in the plan of God for our our ultimate redemption and restoration. But we can't ever allow our hearts to forget the fact that the God of the universe, the sovereign Holy One, humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that we might be made alive together with Him. He bore the cost, we get the benefit. Final thing I want to drive home with this is this. Um, There's only one way to know if you're elect. (laughs) And that's if you believe. There's only one way to know if you're elect. Yeah, God elects, God chooses. How do you know if you're elect? He doesn't give us a book. You don't go look up your list. You know, you can't Google search this thing. How do you know if you're elect? You believe. 
I had a professor in college um, who used to give this illustration, and I'm pretty sure he was quoting somebody, and I don't know. I wasn't able to verify exactly who he was quoting. I'm sure it was somebody famous. But it was this illustration that very simply said this, that, that when you're approaching salvation, it's like you're approaching a door. And above the door is written a phrase that says, whosoever will may come. It's a broad, universal, open-ended invitation. And after you walk through the door, you look back and you see written above the door, elect before the foundation of the world. Both are true. Now, some people are going to be like, Steve, that's a total cop-out. It says right here that God chooses. So how can you say we choose? In fact, that's a common argument. If you, if you actually make this argument that, that God is sovereign, that he chooses, how are we not robots? How do we have any responsibility for the choices we make? Because we're simply making the choices God said we would make. All right, you guys, I'm not, this is not just a, a trick. This is not just me playing with words. I'm unpacking an idea theologically. It's called concurrence. And the idea is this, that there is a tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man and that the truth is in the tension. As Westerners, we hate paradoxical ideas. We're very linear thinkers. We want to go from A to B to C, and there has to be a straight line. Culturally, we don't like paradox. But you guys, Scripture presents us with paradox, and often the truth is in the tension. We get into problems when we want to say, no, it's all one or all the other. What do I mean by that? I mean this. The Scripture clearly says you have a responsibility to believe the gospel. You are given an opportunity to believe the gospel. You are given an invitation to believe the gospel. And you are responsible for the choices you make. You're held accountable for what you believe, for what you choose, for how you behave. See, to put it theologically, I'd put it this way. God works out his sovereign will through the agency of our free will. Uh, I know, mouthful. God works out his sovereign will through the agency of our free will. And what that means is this. You have a choice. You are given an invitation. John chapter 6. Let's put those verses up. John chapter 6, as I sum, in conclusion, I want us to take a look at this verse. In John chapter 6, Jesus again is, is talking to his disciples and explaining um, a little bit about who he is and how he operates. And this is what he says. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All right, pause there. What's he saying? He's saying... God is elect. God is predestined. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. But look at the tension. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. God is sovereign, but you're given a choice. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you hear the invitation that's in front of you? As we're discussing and exploring the sovereignty of God, It would be, um, I believe, a twisting of this truth to walk away and say, I have no choice. I am not free. I think it would be a twisting because, and we see this because there are 
bad Calvinists out there. Let's put it that way. <laughs> bad Calvinists who become arrogant in their views. They treat the sovereignty of God as if it were a puzzle to be solved instead of a mystery to be wondered at. And they sit back and they never share their faith with unbelievers. Why? Because God is sovereign. He's just going to call the people to himself that he wants to call to himself. And they sit back in their arrogance, judging everybody. This is not a doctrine that is meant to make us in any way um, passive. If anything, it should fuel the fire because we know that God has appointed us to share the gospel. And while we're completely inadequate for the task that's at hand, he motivates us to do it. As believers, an understanding of this should free us to more freely share the gospel. As an unbeliever, I want to give you the invitation. Your question isn't whether or not you're elect. Your question is whether or not you're going to believe the gospel. That's the only question you need to deal with. Because the invitation is in front of you. It's a wide open, universal invitation, which says this. You are a sinner. You are broken. You are at odds with the God of the universe. You are seeking the life of God in all the places that you can't find it. But God has stepped into your rebellion, into your brokenness, into your sin, paid the price for you by being your substitute on the cross, and then rising again to new life, completely satisfying God in regard to your sin that you might be forgiven. Will you believe? Will you believe? Will you believe that God is who he says he is and that he's done what he said he has done? Will you let your heart be broken by God's demonstration of love to you on your behalf through the person and the work of Christ? That's the question that's relevant. And I want to invite you this morning, maybe you've been wrestling with this stuff, maybe you've been thinking about this stuff, maybe you've never heard this stuff before. I don't know. But I'm going to ask you, if this is the first time you've heard it, do you hear the call of God uh, coming from an eternity past, which says to you very simply, I love you. I sent my son to die for you, to prove it to you, and ultimately to pay the price for you. Will you believe? I want you to consider the claims of Christ this morning. And ultimately, I think, as we sit in this, I would love to see us all have hearts moved to worship in response to this. You guys, I'm going to put some questions up on the screen to help lead our response time. Ask you guys to pray and just let God speak to you in this. Um, be honest in your prayers and in your reflections. God knows you more honestly than you know yourself. And he wants to meet you there. Not to give you all the intellectual answers, but to communicate to your heart the thing that you desperately need to know. And that you, that is that you are infinitely loved and cherished. That there's a God who is greater than you who has a plan that's better than yours.